I'm Tracy Sable tonight on a special edition of EWTN News Nightly, looking ahead to 2024. What's at stake with the Iowa caucus in the battle to the White House? We have political analysis in the countdown to Election Day. Abortion on the ballot. After a string of state losses for pro-life propositions, we discuss what the strategy needs to be moving forward. Synod on synodality. Voting members will meet at the Vatican again in October. What happens between now and then, and what to expect in the Synod's final report. Plus, preparing for a major moment in the U.S. church. It's going to be a significant historical moment of renewal for the church in the United States. We bring you inside details of the upcoming Eucharistic Congress in Indiana, the first in the U.S. since before World War II. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for joining us as we look ahead to 2024. The countdown is on to Election Day, when the United States will vote for the next president. And while it is shaping up to be a rematch of 2020, GOP candidates remain hopeful the Iowa caucus will make a difference, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has already visited Iowa's 99 counties. I don't think doing the 99 counties is just about the caucus. Like, yes, obviously, we're going to use that to to win the caucus, uh, but I think it has significance beyond there. One, by the fact that I'm willing to do this, that should show you that I consider myself a servant, not a ruler. The Iowa caucus is the first test of the 2024 presidential election. It takes place on January 15th when Iowa Republicans will caucus in high school gyms, community buildings, and churches across the state. Joining us now is Susan Crabtree, political correspondent for Real Clear Politics. Susan, great to see you again. Um, Can you put the Iowa caucus into context for us? Uh, DeSantis really is banking on it a lot. Do you think that it could be maybe a game changer for him? Well, he certainly put a lot of effort into this. As you mentioned, all 99 counties, he's won the endorsement of the governor, Kim Reynolds, and a major Christian figure, uh, Bob Vanderplatz, in the state. So he has also put so many resources into this. Um, but while it is it, even all throughout all that effort, the numbers haven't changed enough to make a big difference, at, at least not yet, um, in this, in in fact, in in his ability to carve into Trump's enormous lead, right now, according to the Real Clear Politics average of polls, we have Trump at 31 points ahead of DeSantis, 50 uh, percent to his 19.7 percent, and a new Des Moines I, um, Register poll has DeSantis up a bit, eight percent. But Trump has surged even more since October, about 11 percent. So obviously he's ahead of Nikki Haley and he has a comfortable uh, lead against her. Well, not it's like about three or four points, but he really needs to make more of a difference if he's going to beat Donald Trump in this first of uh, the nation uh, deciding point. Yeah, and Susan, I mean, how good of a predictor is the Iowa caucus? How much weight does it really hold? Well, it is not a great predictor. Uh, You certainly want to gain momentum. Anyone who has the first win is going to be, you know, have the sails at his back. 
but the wind at his back. But, you know, this is an interesting um, dynamic because of Trump so far ahead. Uh, in the past, uh, the Iowa caucus has only produced uh, three since 1972, since it was instituted, has only produced three winning presidents. Um, there's a lot more people who have gone on to win their party nomination who have won the Iowa caucus. But the three presidents who have got, won Iowa and then become president are um, Jimmy Carter, Barack Obama, and George W. Bush. And George W. Bush is the only Republican to win the Iowa caucus and go on to win the presidency. The problem with the Iowa caucus is that the voters there are a lot more conservative, so they're not indicative of the rest of the country. Susan, we have maybe a little over a minute left, um, but as you know, the Republican National Committee uh, plans to lock down the GOP nominee in March, uh, and this comes as the first criminal case against former President Donald Trump is getting underway. How do you foresee these trials impacting his presidential chances, if at all? Well, certainly we've never seen anything like this before. We, it, the president is on a collision course with his legal strategy and the the election, 2024 election, it's he will use these trials if they go forward uh, to as rallying points um, for his campaign. We have not seen as the prosecutions has loaded up against him uh, for ongoing prosecutions in different states against a former president. We've never seen anything like this. His support has grown in among the Republican base. And so he's going to use these as rallying points, and we'll see um, if he if they even go forward. Because, as you know, uh, his lawyers have applied, uh, have appealed, and the special prosecutor Jack Smith has asked the Supreme Court to put off these trial this trial, particularly the one about January sixth, and whether he had anything to do with the insurrection, causing the insurrection, off till the end of the after the presidential election. And, you know, from my experience covering Congress and the White House for several years, many years, <laughs> um, we have, I've seen the FBI and the Justice Department do this with members of Congress. They don't want to interfere with elections. So it'll be interesting to see how the Republican-dominated Supreme Court um, weighs in and decides this. Susan, always great to get your insights and to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Tracy. It's great to be with you, too. Well, outside the presidential election, abortion will also be on the ballot in 2024. EWTN Pro-Life Weekly host Prudence Robertson has this report. That was New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez outside of the Supreme Court moments after the justices announced their decision to overturn Roe v. Wade in June of 2022. Since that moment, Democrats have doubled down on their strategy to turn out voters, galvanize them by claiming that women across the nation would suffer and even die without abortion. That the highest court in our land, the United States Supreme Court, the court of Thurgood and RBG took a constitutional right that had been recognized 
from the people of America, from the women of America. The strategy seems to be paying off so far. Since Roe's fall, constituents in several states have voted to expand access to abortion, most recently in Ohio. This is one of the most extreme and dangerous amendments we've ever seen in Ohio. The, quote, right to make reproductive decisions, including abortion initiative, also known as Issue 1, added language to Ohio's constitution that opens the door for abortions up to the moment of birth. Issue 1 could even lead to the total elimination of parental rights, not only in reference to abortion, but also regarding other invasive surgeries, like sex changes for minors. A few weeks ago, our neighbors to the south put abortion in their state constitution. Here's to Ohio. Issue 1 is not unlike other ballot proposals that have passed. In 2022, similar language was added to Michigan's constitution, championed by their governor, Gretchen Whitmer. As a result, she just signed legislation this November that cements the new abortion language in their constitution into their code of law. In just 18 months, we went from the overturn of Roe v. Wade to protecting abortion rights and expanding reproductive health care in Michigan. All our progress is thanks to Michiganders like you. These ballot proposals are without exception spawned by pro-abortion state leaders and funded by national pro-abortion groups. And they're just getting started. In 2024, nearly a dozen states could have abortion questions on the ballot, including pro-life strongholds like Arkansas and Missouri. Seeing pro-abortion groups uh, attempting to achieve through confusingly worded ballot initiatives Uh, what they can't achieve through the the normal democratic process uh, of representative government. As our nation's people grapple with this gravely moral issue, the lives of many unborn children hang in the balance. And the views of those vying for the Oval Office in 2024? That we'd fight. We'd fight to restore these protections of Roe v. Wade and make it the law of the land once again. And we're going to do that. Rip the baby out of the womb in the ninth month. You're allowed to do that, and you shouldn't be allowed to do that. Other Republican primary candidates are all over the map on the topic of abortion. This was on display at NBC's third Republican primary debate in Miami last month. We're better off when everybody counts. Uh, We're better off when we can promote a culture of life. This is a personal issue for every woman and every man. So here's the missing ingredient in this movement. Sexual responsibility for men. Prudence Robertson reporting for EWTN News Nightly. And Prudence Robertson joins us now, the host of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Prudence, great to have you back. Um, And thanks so much for that report. Wonderful. You had mentioned nearly a dozen states could have abortion questions on the ballot in 2024. Tell us more about what you're tracking. Yes, that's right, Tracy. There will be a lot to keep track of on the issue of abortion between now and the presidential election in November of 2024. And we're excited to be launching on Catholic News Agency a comprehensive map that will track day by day whether or not these questions actually are officially on the ballot. And we have that map to show you today exclusively on EWTN News Nightly for the first time. You'll see an array of colors on that map. The dark red represents states where we've unfortunately already lost on the pro-life issue, states like California, Kansas, Michigan, and others. You'll see a bright pink color that represents where pro-abortion groups have tried and attempted to introduce language that could be on the ballot, and we're continuing to track um, whether or not those, those ballot proposals will become official. And the bright red color that you see over Maryland and New York right now 
Those states are where abortion will officially be on the ballot in 2024. Our prediction is that those bright pink uh, states, about 12 of them now, will eventually all turn bright red. So we're we're looking forward to continue to track that for you all day by day um, so that we can really be up to date no matter what state we live in about what's going to be on our ballot in November. Yeah, and Prudence, you obviously have your finger on the pulse of this. What are you hearing from your sources, your pro-life sources, on these ballot propositions? Yeah, that's a really good question, Tracy. When the Ohio loss happened just uh, last month in November, it was really disappointing, a sad day in Ohio. Um, and pro-life leaders said that it was because groups, pro-life groups in the state were outspent and the pro-abortion messengers were just really good at, at getting into the state, getting money from from, from out-of-state groups into the state. But I think right now we're, we're really at a turning point for the pro-life movement where we need to reassess our strategy. You know, the truth is that in a lot of states, the rate of abortion rose after the fall of Roe versus Wade. And in some states where pro-life bans were enacted, more babies were born. But that doesn't change the fact that public opinion does seem to be shifting on abortion. And pro-life leaders, Republican leaders, cannot ignore that leading into, leading into 2024. And, and it needs to shape their strategy. It's kind of too soon to tell um, how much they will let the abortion issue impact their strategy in the campaign. But but it's clearly a, a deeply uh, moral issue and one that's really top of mind for voters. Prudence, not a whole lot of time left, but quickly, when you look at the states where abortion could be on the ballot, um, any surprises there? Well, I think what's most surprising is that it's really a wide array of states. You know, you have more pro-abortion states like Nevada working to further enshrine so-called abortion rights in their constitutions. But you also have strongly pro-life states where pro-abortion groups are really denying the will of the people that has been represented um, at the ballot box and in the realm of public opinion for many years. Um, states like Iowa, um, Missouri, even Arkansas could potentially have abortion on their ballot in 2024. So that's what's most surprising to me there. Um, Pro-abortion groups really just seem to be denying the will of the American people and pushing these uh, proposals through. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Prudence, thank you so much. God bless. Thanks, Tracy. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including the State of the Synod. We preview what's ahead with the Synod on Synodality and more happenings within the church. Welcome back. As we continue our special coverage, looking to the year ahead, the Synod on Synodality will meet in Rome in October 2024 for its second General Assembly. The first assembly concluded with a summary report that called for a larger role for the laity in the church. The 42-page report did not include definitive conclusions on same-sex blessings, women's ordination, and a handful of other hot-button topics. The Senate's final stage in October is expected to produce a final text that will be presented to Pope Francis for his consideration. Joining us now is the editorial director for EWTN News, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Matthew, great to be with you. Uh, you were in Rome during the Senate's first General Assembly. What happens between now and the final phase of the Synod in October, and what should we expect? 
Well, the, the Holy Father and, and the, the Synod itself, uh, the General Secretariat, uh, issued some documents just recently uh, laying out uh, some of their expectations, some of the homework uh, for the Universal Church. Uh, that includes listening to the Holy Father, who's expected to weigh in on some of the major issues that were raised, especially as a church, as he wants uh, the church to be more synodal, more listening, more accompaniment. Uh, but then there's the, the role that uh, Episcopal conferences are going to have to play. In other words, these national churches, these national bodies of bishops are really expected to be the driving force for a lot of the preparations. That means going back and listening, looking at the synthesis document and determining what are some of those key issues that are very specific uh, to a particular country. Then it goes down back, as we saw with the preparations for this last uh, part of the synod, listening on a diocesan level to Catholics, again, fine-tuning that uh, to the specific needs that Catholics are concerned about, uh, but also what they're raising uh, to bishops and, and in their own parishes. All of this uh, it culminates with the October 2024 second session of the Synod on Synodality, when there will be expected a final report given to Pope Francis, and it'll be up to him to decide what to do with all of those recommendations. Matthew, I want to turn to um, other church news now. The National Eucharistic Congress will be held in Indiana in July 2024, as you know. Can you, you know, talk to us about the significance of this event for American Catholics? Well, any Eucharistic Congress, any Eucharistic procession is important. We need them in our parishes, we need them in our diocese, we need them across the country. So for this event, uh, culminating with this Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis uh, in the summer, this is a major event in the life of the church. Catholics across the country are being asked to participate in two very important ways. The first is uh, to look at their own lives and to cherish and come to a deeper understanding of the Eucharist. That's one of the things that the bishops are asking for. But then there's this coming together as a, a Catholic community, as the American Catholic Church, uh, to take part in what will be the four processions from the four corners of the United States. And then all of that coming together into the Eucharistic Congress itself uh, in Indianapolis, as I was saying, during the summer. So there are a lot of opportunities for Catholics uh, to participate. But above all, we need to take this as an opportunity to deepen our understanding of the Eucharist. Matthew, about a minute or so left, but quickly. Yeah. Uh, looking ahead, does Pope Francis have any uh, notable travel on his schedule? Yes, so the Holy Father mentioned that it is hope in, uh, his hope in 2024 to go to India. Uh, we'll have to see if that's possible. We saw the cancellation of the trip to Dubai uh, because of his health. The big ticket item, the big one that everyone is looking at, uh, is a, a potential trip in 2024 to Argentina. He has not made that trip uh, in his time as Pope over the last decade. A lot of interesting uh, complications potentially with the recent election of Javier Malay as the president of Argentina. But I think that's uh, an issue that's very important to Pope Francis, and we'll see if his uh, health will allow him to do that. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Bunsen. Always appreciate it. Good to be with you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, Eucharistic Revival. We'll tell you how to prepare for the upcoming National Eucharistic Congress and who will be there.
Thanks for staying with us on tonight's special edition. Looking ahead to 2024, the U.S. Church will host the first National Eucharistic Congress in 83 years. As part of the ongoing Eucharistic revival, an estimated 80,000 Catholics are expected to converge onto Lucas Oil Stadium in Indianapolis this July for the National Eucharistic Congress. The five-day event will entail breakout sessions, Eucharistic adoration, and processions, and more. Featured speakers include Bishop Robert Barron, Father Mike Schmitz, and Sisters of Life's Sister Bethany Madonna. I spoke earlier with one of the lead organizers of the Eucharistic Congress to hear what the faithful can expect. Tim Glumkowski is the executive director of the National Eucharistic Congress, and he joins us now. Tim, great to have you on. Uh, Pope Francis has said the National Eucharistic Congress marks a significant moment in the life of the church here in the United States. Put that into context for us, uh, the significance of this upcoming event. It's a great question, and yeah, it's beautiful for the Holy Father to have recognized preliminarily this incredible moment and how impactful it's going to be in the Church in the United States. I think we mean it's significant in two ways, right? First, uh, sort of as a historical moment, the last time we did a National Eucharistic Congress was in 1941, and there's countries that do these every four years, you know? So to bring that tradition back for the 10th National Eucharistic Congress is a really powerful thing, especially when these used to be gatherings of hundreds of thousands of Catholics. The second in my mind is it's significant as a moment of renewal. Uh, really, that's the heart of the, the National Eucharistic Revival in, in general and the Congress is sort of the milestone moment of that campaign. So uh, I think it's going to be a significant historical moment of renewal for the church in the United States. Tim, what exactly um, will the event entail? I know it's a five-day event and the schedule, it looks like it's packed. Yeah, I think it's going to have a lot of things that are familiar for people who have gone to Catholic conferences, incredible speakers and liturgies. I think what's unique about this event is it's really a gathering of the whole church hosted by the U.S. bishops. We have a citywide Eucharistic procession and a papal delegate saying the final mass in the last day. And the, the through line through everything is this experience of uh, we want people coming who are hungry again for the renewal of the church. If, that, if that's you, if you're someone who's who's really desiring for, for God to bring renewal to his bride, um, it's going to be through an encounter with him. We think that that's actually going to happen. And so everything over five days is oriented toward that purpose, confessions and, um, you know, incredible workshops and, and experiences really throughout the entire city of Indianapolis. So it's going to be incredible. Tim, how are you and the organizers um, working to ensure the National Eucharistic Congress is really a truly spiritual event and not, you know, just a Catholic conference? What's going to set this apart? Yeah, I think everything for me comes back to that concept of Jesus in the Eucharist. This is, uh, yeah, more than just a conference of one group or one demographic of Catholics. This is uh, sort of the world's fair for the Church of the United States. This is everybody all together. Was that James Joyce that said Catholicism is here comes everybody? Well, in Indianapolis, you know, we're going to say uh, here comes everybody, right? And so sort of the, the breadth of the church that's going to be expressed, there, I think, is going to be powerful. And then really, like I said, that, that concept of renewal being so central to all the programming really does drive decision making. We don't want people to just come away thinking, oh, that was a good talk, or you know, I heard some beautiful worship music. We want people coming away lit on fire, filled with the Holy Spirit, experiencing conversion in a new way, and being sent back out to their local church uh, on fire for the mission of revival. Uh, Tim, quickly, uh, it was announced last month that day and weekend passes will now be an option. Why is that important? 
it's important because this moment has to be accessible and affordable for everybody who wants to come. So still, we anticipate a high number of, of five-day pass attendees uh, for the National Eucharistic Congress. Um, but certainly, we want opportunities for, you know, for my, myself, we have four young kids under eight years old. Uh, to come for five days might be a challenge, right? It's, you know, it'd be four nights in a hotel room and the expenses, certain things. So to be able to come for a weekend, right, if we were driving from maybe the Midwest, where I grew up in, outside of Chicago, it's a three-hour drive to get down uh, to Indianapolis makes this so much more doable, um, we think, with these kind of unique options to sort of choose your own journey a little bit for how you're going to come to the Congress. Yeah, that's really important. I know uh, And if folks want to get more information and tickets to the Eucharistic Congress, uh, they can go to EucharisticCongress.org. Tim, thanks so much for coming on and telling us all about it. We appreciate it. God bless. Thank you so much. God bless you, too. And we thank you for watching tonight's special edition, Looking Ahead to 2024. And remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.